Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Sir Charles Schultz III with us. We'll take calls with him next hour as we talk about all things space. Let's talk a little bit more about the Russians for a moment, uh, Sir Charles. Of course, you know, they've got the payload. They get us up to the ISS and everything else. But why have they stopped? You know, no attempts to go to the moon, no more attempts to go to Mars. What happened to them? Well, there are two things we have to consider here. One of them is when you go to do a venture of that sort in space, you've got to make a profit at it, whether it's in raw information that you can use to advance your science or if it's in finding and exploiting a resource of some sort. Going to the moon is on the slate for a number of countries, particularly for issues of raw resources and energy. Uh, we've talked in times past of the thought that there's helium-3 on the moon, which might be useful for uh, fusion power in the future. And we've also looked at the fact that shielding satellites from uh, impact and so forth could best be done by a system that makes the equivalent of lunar sandbags and launches them back to Earth orbit. So you do that from the moon rather than having to pay for all that tonnage going into space. But the other thing is, really, um, the Russians are not really delivering any of the supplies to the, United, uh, to the uh, International Space Station of, of any consequence these days, because... SpaceX is, uh, has already made 16 launches up there. Wow. And so, you know, the time flies. We become so used to these things happening, we don't even consider how long it's been. Um, we used to depend on the Russians to get every person and every payload up there for quite a while. Now they're still carrying people, but that's about to shift. Now, the loss of the SpaceX capsule, and by the way, it was a test of their uh, safety escape system, uh, and that was a used capsule, by the way. Um, the loss of the capsule may set them back as much as a year toward making manned launches. But we're to the position now where if they said, man, we've absolutely positively got to go now, we could do it. So, you know, our hands aren't tied. Um, the Russians are, pay, are uh, going to play a lower um, importance task in getting people and supplies to the space station as they have been over the last year or so. So, you know, uh, going to space... You don't have uh, a destination to go unless you put it there. In the past, the destination has been, we're going to gather some information, or going to fix something, or we're going to deliver a payload. So that's all about the change. Let's talk about some of our favorite subjects here, and that is extraterrestrial life, Sir Charles. Okay. Personally, how do you feel about that possibility? Well, you know, if you look at it, there's so much life on the Earth and so much diversity you think it must be everywhere. And chemistry and physics, you know, work the same everywhere in the universe. Um, you know, there have been reports over the last few months of repeating radio signals from space. Uh, this is something that SETI's always looked for. But the signals are billions of years old. They're from ancient galaxies. Now, this could mean two things. Number one, it's sold and so far away that they couldn't possibly have any, effect, any sort of an effect on us here on Earth, uh, most likely. And the other one is... Well, if life were around that far back, then civilizations could exist in the universe that are extremely ancient and know pretty much everything. We are really the newcomers on the block. So alien life, in my opinion, has to be a sure bet. I mean, look at all of the poor sorts of life forms we found on Mars. Mm -hmm. It looks like there could be six places in our solar system alone where primitive life exists. Uh, intelligent life, it's just a matter of time before we find it. And, and would you say that it appears that intelligent life forms about four and a half billion years after the system has been created? Well, that's a good guess, but that's the only guess we have. We have a sample of one to analyze. It's got to be us, yeah. <laughs> but 
I would say that's probably not a bad guess. Um, you know, if you look at how the dinosaurs were proceeding, they were beginning to get brainy before they got wiped out by the asteroid impact. And that was 65 million years ago. That's right. Um, if not for that impact, they would probably be dominating the planet right now. And that's something to think about. On other worlds, we, we often picture, you know, mammals as the dominant life. Other worlds could have the equivalence of reptiles or birds or some other form that we haven't quite imagined as the dominant life form. But whatever we find, it's going to be something utilitarian. I mean, think about dolphins. They have no hands. They can't run technology underwater like uh, blast furnaces and electronics. So they're very limited by their physical environment and their structure. There could be plenty of smart things in the universe that don't have hands. On the other hand, we're not, we're not going to meet them. We're not going to hear from them. We're going to hear from people who have technical capabilities and manipulative capabilities and the ability to think and produce technologies and learn from the universe like we do. Now, of course, when we talk about life, we bring in spirituality. Some people bring in religion. Some people bring in, of course, God. Sure. Where does God fit into the equation, in your opinion, with okay. all of this? Well, I would say this. A lot of people feel that the universe could arise at random. And that's certainly a possibility. Other people feel that its complexity could only have been created by somebody directing it. That's not necessarily true. If you had enough universes forming over a long enough period of time, eventually one of them would produce life, and you would need a god to produce it. On the other hand, I do believe there's a god, and there's a number of reasons I do believe that. But what I will say is this. It's easy for us to imagine in our weakness, that there is always somebody smarter, faster, or stronger. And it is only natural for this idea, as pervasive as it is, to put things together in such a way as we believe that there is a smarter, faster, stronger being outside of ourselves manipulating things and, and handling things, because that's what we desire to do. And as we know, the Greeks created their gods in their own images with flaws. Uh, a real god, if he had flaws, would be flaws we can't even comprehend, perhaps. But compared to where we're going with computer technology, we can see how to create and simulate worlds now. And some of them are getting better and better. We've reached the realm of quantum computing. We literally could create universes in the computer that, for all intents and purposes, are real. And if we put intelligences in them, what would we tell them? What would we represent to them? Well, and I've got to tell you, it, it appears to me that there is no randomness here to make all of this happen. It's got too much order to it. It's got everything seems to be fit like a glove. And random doesn't work that way, Sir Charles. Well, that's an easy position to take. But if you look at something as simple as the evolution of a system, um, any system that can carry information from one stage to the next can change its level of complexity. And, you know, people uh, scoff at evolution all the time, but it's an observed fact. There are things that evolve, and we use the technology evolving code, evolving systems all the time. So evolution is a valid process. But remember, that doesn't exclude a god. As I told uh, a friend of mine who said this years ago, he says, how can you believe in God and believe in evolution? And I said, it's because it's not my job to tell God what tools he can use. Well, <laughs> that's a possibility, too. But, you know, with the intelligence, whatever the intelligence might be, whether we want to call it God or whatever it might be, it really appears to be there, doesn't it, in your opinion? I think so. Ben, you know, there are a lot of things that I, uh, that I think of that 
as a scientist, I don't generally discuss. And, uh, you know, I'm a man of faith, not a man of religion, and understand there's a big, big difference there. Uh, I do see many, many reasons why it makes the most sense for there to be a God. And if you really come back down to it, though, if the universe is a created thing, then it was done through intent. And if there is intent, then we're the product of intent. And that means we have a purpose. And I think that for many people, this is one of the things that gives them a sense of hope, that their lives aren't just wasted or at random. The thought that we actually have a meaning of some sort, that we're valuable to someone or something somewhere. Well, that's possible, too. Sir Charles Schultz III with us. We'll take calls next hour as we talk about just about everything going on in space. How aggressive are we in terms of wanting to send an astronaut to Mars? Now, we've heard estimates of having them there by 2025, 2030. It can be done. The, the big showstopper right now is getting better engine technology. I mean, we could send anybody anywhere right now if we had sufficient engine power to get them there in a reasonable period of time. And those engines are emerging. Um, I worked on an engine project with the uh, Space Island Group, remember Gene Myers' group, uh, many years ago, to uh, make a plasma engine to move some of their hardware to higher orbit. And I feel that that engine could easily be adapted to traveling all over the solar system. Well, with something that cuts our travel times down from seven to ten months, down to, let's say, a month or less, a couple of weeks, then you're in the ballpark. You actually have the ability to put people anywhere without them being exposed to, for instance, half a lethal dose of radiation on the trip. Um, this is the big issue right now. In the time it takes for a man to travel to Mars or a woman to travel to Mars or even living, you know, life samples or living materials, they would be hit with so much radiation that for a human being it would be half a lethal dose. You wouldn't be coming back because you'd get the rest of your dose on the way. So, Charles Schultz, this is amazing work that you've done. It's amazing work that's just out there letting our minds wander to think about all these incredible complexities and possibilities what will it take for us to really say definitively there are other planets out there with intelligent life on them? I believe that that could be done if we could see some sort of a signal we could detect. Uh, well, in fact, that would be, a, that'd be it right there. Any signal we could detect on a regular basis uh, would be enough. If we could get an optical look at what's going on, if we could see an atmosphere and see pollution byproducts in it, for instance, well, you know, that's a good possibility. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, we often think in terms of radio or laser signals, but what if they're using, you know, quantum entanglement to send their messages? Uh, we would not have the ability to detect those signals just yet. We're only now learning how to use entanglement. And personally, I may be wrong, but I really strongly believe that entanglement, uh, quantum mechanical methods, that's the way to send your information, and it could get anywhere in the universe nearly instantly, as far as we can tell. So maybe this communication is passing through us all the time. We simply don't know how to read it yet. Well, that could be, too. That's a very possible situation. Now, there was just a report a few weeks ago of a spacecraft that uh, China had blown up some time ago, and all this debris was heading possibly to the ISS, the International Space Station. How bad is that situation? You know, that's one of the things that really concerns me. Um, they have a number of uh, governments working on anti-satellite weapons. And 
The latest one, of course, was the Indian uh, space debris, but before that was the Chinese one. The Chinese event was back in January of 2007, and they shot down a satellite, and they made thousands of chunks of debris. About 2,300 of those were as large or larger than a golf ball, and about 35,000 of, of the pieces of debris were about the size of a fingernail. Think of little chips of solar panels and bits of metal and plastic. And there's an estimated 150,000 bits that are smaller than that. And so that cloud of debris could reach the International Space Station. It's, um, it's in a lower orbit, but it only takes a tiny little piece of material to penetrate the skin of a spacecraft at that speed. Uh, a paint flake can carry the energy of a hand grenade at those velocities. Now, on March 27th of this year, India became the fourth nation to destroy a satellite in orbit, and they used a ground-based weapon, and it was called Mission Shakti, and so they did it as well. They shot down one of their own, but the debris uh, is about... Oh, 60 miles lower than the space station, 65 miles lower. But it, too, some of it could reach the space station. So there is a real concern about it. There's something called the Kessler syndrome. You blow up a satellite, its pieces destroy more satellites, and those pieces of debris destroy more. More, that's right. And then before you know it, uh, you can't travel in space. Donald J. Kessler, back in 78, 1978, was working as a NASA astrophysicist, and he was the one who defined this Kessler syndrome, and it is a real concern. We've got to have a way to get junk out of orbit, maybe using drones or something. How fast are these objects uh, moving? Well, if you're going forward in orbit, it's around, uh, wow, about 15,000 to 27,000 miles per hour, depending on where you are. Gosh. If you're going backwards, you're already at that speed, and something's coming at you with that same speed in the opposite direction. It doubles your velocities, and that means it hits four times as hard. I mean, if it hit an astronaut, Sir Charles, doing a spacewalk, would it cut right through his suit? Depending on the, well, yes. Yes, it would. And, you know, oh, depending boy. on how big it was, it, it could kill him instantly. Uh, if it's something as large as, uh, you know, your finger or a fingernail, it could mean instant death. I mean, what would a bullet do? Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yes, it could be exceptionally dangerous. To now, we try to track these objects from the surface uh, with our equipment. How small can we track? Do you know? Well, that's classified, but uh, we can track items as small as a fingernail. Um, that much is known. In space? And, yes. And it My gosh. On composition. What we do is we, we send uh, a mixture of radar signals, and the combined wave fronts from a number of weaker signals come together to give you an image. It's kind of like when they do a, a CAT scan or an MRI on your body. You can get a lot more information out of the uh, radar signal than you think by a mathematical analysis. So they're tracking millions of tiny pieces of garbage right now. And really, this is one of our biggest potential industrial revolutions in space travel, getting something that will safely travel into space, trap this garbage, and bring it back to the atmosphere so it can reenter. Just amazing. I just can't think of the possibilities that something like that could actually happen. But it's out there, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. Uh, but just consider, if you were standing on the moon on a flat plane and no mountains got in the way, a high-velocity rifle is enough to put a bullet literally in orbit to go completely around the moon and come back to you. Mm. Dramatic, to be sure. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.